postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault that no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church Podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you guys to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. This is an exciting episode and I know I say that for like every episode, but I suppose I just get excited about each and every one of them because we're just following this storyline and exploring uh, together and it's just cool. It's cool every single time. Uh, but there is a particular reason why I'm excited about this podcast and it is because it is the last podcast of the series uh, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation and it's been an absolute blast exploring this content with you guys uh, over the last month or two, uh, really two, yeah. Uh, it's it's just been awesome, awesome stuff. And I want to thank each and every one of you who have tuned in to listen to this. But more importantly, I want to thank those of you who are looking for ways in which you can apply this in your local context and be a part of the change that we wish to see, uh, to quote from Gandhi, right? To, to be the change that we wish to see in our church, in our world. So uh, thank you for that. Also, guys, this is not simply the final episode for the uh, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation series, uh, season two of the Padanar. Um, this is actually the last episode for the year. So this is the final episode for 2020. I'm going to be taking a break. I'm going to be relaxing with the fam, enjoying the holidays, uh, and I will be back next year with some fresh new content. But don't forget to continue to check out the Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'll still be posting things on there uh, that I think you guys will absolutely love and enjoy. There just won't be any new podcast episodes until uh, Potternar Season 3 next year. So that's going to be exciting. I'm currently have um, I'm currently toying with a few different ideas. Um, I, I know I've mentioned some in the past tentatively, uh, but I haven't quite made up my mind exactly what the next season is going to be but whatever it's going to be is going to be awesome um because we're going to be talking about jesus and we're going to talk about mission and that's always awesome so for the final episode of the adventism for a post-church generation i want to touch on the theme of contextualizing adventism for emerging western culture uh, now this is a massive discussion that could literally go on forever because Western culture is extremely fragmented. It's it's not like all secular Western people believe the same thing, right? Western culture is very fragmented. And so what that means is that it actually demands a multicolored contextualization. And there is not one person who can master all of those colors. We each need to be committed to engaging our local spheres of secularism and developing the canvas or the color palette that is necessary for painting beauty in that space. And it's gonna look different for you, it's gonna look different for me, it's gonna look different for all of us. Uh, there's no way that one person can master uh, 
multicolored contextualization for every single fragmentation in society because it's just too many. There's way too many. So we all need to be in on this, you guys. And and I really want to invite you if you if you've been listening to this out of curiosity, but you haven't really uh, embraced the call to be a missionary to the post-church age, I want to invite you to do it because there is no way that Pastor Marcus is going to do this. And there's no way that, you know, Ty Gibson or David Ashrick or as amazing as these guys are, there's no way they're going to do this, right? We, we need all hands on deck because I don't occupy your space. I'm not in your neighborhood. I'm not in your city. Uh, I'm not in your sphere of influence. And the way in which your sphere of influence manifests its secularism is going to be distinct from the way in which it's manifested in mine. Now, of course, there are some common themes, but those common themes don't mean that there is a common method. The common themes that are basically, you know, you can basically find uh, in any secular sort of cul-de-sac uh, that that those common themes are very, very broad, right? Broad brushes. And we talked about that in the previous part in our series, Understanding the Secular Mind. So if you haven't listened to that, make sure you listen to that afterwards, because uh, I think it'll add more color to part in our season two that we've been exploring on, on contextualizing Adventism. But the bottom line is that those broad strokes are helpful in developing a model for for you know engaging our local spaces but those broad strokes are not in themselves the way in which we construct the model the model depends severely on really immersing yourself into stories and narratives and, and categories that define your local space so please take the call accept the call to be a missionary to the post-church age to be a person whom god has planted in a particular sphere of influence and and i, I talk a lot about the west but i recognize that this is is no longer just a western phenomenon all right uh, i know in the philippines emerging generations in the philippines are not pre-modern anymore in fact they're quite impacted by post-modernity and the categories that have come out of western culture i know the same is is taking place in africa uh, and it's not just um postmodernism or, or those sort of elements that are impacting younger generations in africa but also pan-africanism and and the decolonization that often goes um, overboard and and aims to not only get rid of the Eurocentric uh, ways of being, but even what is perceived to be Christianity as a Eurocentric religion. So there's a, there's a sense in which we want to get rid of Jesus as well, and that's a big challenge. And I know that this is happening in in Latin countries across South America as well. I've been talking with some guys from from Mexico and Brazil and just different places. And uh, I even had uh, an email came through recently. Uh, I don't remember where what part of Europe it was from, uh, but it was one of the Eastern Europe uh, countries that are, you know, historically very, very, very old school, traditional and conservative, at least as far as how Adventism is expressed. And they're really struggling with younger generations. So so this isn't just a Western thing. This is happening everywhere. Um, and so you don't think that, hey, you know, well, uh, I don't live in America or in Australia or in the UK. So this doesn't really apply to me. Wherever you are, post-church ideology is, is really sweeping the world by storm. So I want to encourage you and invite you to be a part of this mission uh, to the contextualization of, of our message so that it can make sense to the cultures that you and I inhabit 
cultures that are so multicolored, beautifully multicolored, but different and, and unique. But what I want to do in this episode is I want to focus on one way in which contextualization can flow. And uh, it's the method that I'm going to talk about in today's episode. And, and I'm only going to talk about it briefly because this can go on forever and ever as well. Um, I want to talk about the method that I use in my Bible study set, The Road. So let me shamelessly do a plug for The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture, now available at thestorychurchproject.com. <laughs> uh, grab a copy, you guys, grab a copy. Enjoy it. Journey with your friends. Uh, it's a Bible study set designed specifically for millennials in a more postmodern, post-church culture, um, which impacts millennials both in and out of church, by the way. Um, but in the Bible study set, The Road, I frame the narrative of Scripture in a way that interacts more meaningfully with the categories that drive uh, millennial uh, secular thought or emerging secular thought. I don't want to narrow it down to just millennials because Zeds have some of these categories as well. And I'm, a, I'm pretty confident the alphas will too. So basically what I want to do in this episode is I want to talk about the framework that I use in that set. Uh, and it's the framework that I use quite often uh, in the spheres in which I God has placed me, right? In the spheres in which God has placed me. And, and it has always been a framework that has worked really, really well. And so once again, this may not necessarily work in your sphere of influence and in the context that you inhabit, but it, it does work in mine. And so my hope is not to tell you, hey, this is how you should frame uh, or reframe the narrative of scripture for, for emerging Western culture. Um, but this is how you can reframe it. Like this is what it looks like to reframe one potential way of doing it. And if you need more help on this, I want to encourage you to get your hands on the book. You can go on Amazon and you can read the book, The 3D Gospel, all right? And I said that right, 3D as in three-dimensional, The 3D Gospel. Now, this book has nothing to do with postmodernism or secularism. What the authors of this book do is they demonstrate how the gospel needs to be reframed from a Western culture to an Eastern culture to, to an African culture. There's, there's different categories that dominate the way in which people see the world. And the challenge that this book really confronts is that, uh, you know, basically Western preachers or missionaries or evangelists, they use a Western framework to explain the gospel in an Eastern context that perceives the world in a totally different framework and in an African context that does the same thing. And when you present the gospel using a framework that is inherent to your culture, but not other cultures, they miss out on really capturing or understanding God in a way that makes sense to them fully. So get your hands on a 3D gospel if you feel like you need way more, uh, which you most likely will after today's episode. And I think that book is going to bless you. But um, here is the framework that I use in the road, and it's the framework that I use in, in my personal contact with, with secular people today and, and with young people in church deeply impacted by these categories. I call it the framework of oneness and separation. All right. The framework of oneness and separation. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Emerging generations, uh, I think this is no lie, have a passion for social and ecological justice. And the vision that undergirds social and ecological justice 
is a vision of planetary oneness. Now, I'm going to try and define these terms as best as possible as I go. But essentially, ecological justice is justice for the ecosystem, you know, nature, um, the preservation of the earth and its species uh, and its and its ecosystems. Um, and uh, social justice is justice in our societies. Uh, and, and that you know, is very nebulous. I understand uh, social justice is a complex term. And depending on the worldview that you bring to the table, social justice will take on a different color, right? So if you have like a Marxist worldview, social justice is going to be different than if you have like a capitalist worldview and, and so on and so forth. And I, I don't want to get into all that, but I think we can at least appreciate that there is a deep desire for social justice where the issues that plague our neighborhoods, our cities, our societies, and the people who suffer the most, right? The dispossessed, the marginalized, the oppressed, that they get justice. That justice isn't just something that's reserved for the upper echelons of society, for the elite, for those who have the wealth to get the best lawyers or to, you know, um, you know, bribe politicians and judges or anything like that but that that justice is is true justice right it's it's fair it's equitable that everyone has access to it and this isn't just justice in a in a legal judicial sense but really justice just even in an interpersonal sense and and in the sense of you know having the opportunity or the capacity equal capacity to to thrive in life to pursue happiness to pursue success to to build the world that you envision and so anyways um essentially social justice and ecological justice are themes that are deeply deeply important to emerging western generations and the vision that undergirds social and ecological justice as i said before is a vision of planetary oneness and so you you might have heard uh, these terms of globalization or global citizenry uh, tossed around and and the basic idea here is that there is a pursuit or an aim or a vision in which the earth operates as a communal village there's no haves and have nots there's no wealth accumulation for the few for the privileged uh, but you know other people are just starving because the guy over there has a giant mansion right like it, it's moving away from this and, and and pursuing true economic and civic equality now when adventists typically hear talk of globalization we we get really defensive and and honestly let me let me be clear here i think that that's not necessarily a bad thing right because the only way to achieve any kind of economic or global oneness is through tyranny someone or a group of someones have to exercise autocratic or or you know, in a more contemporary sense, technocratic coercion in order to enforce the kind of legislation it would take to administer a one world village. Uh, and, and so I don't think that, you know, it's necessarily something that we should, you know, be like, hey, yeah, that's great. Because a lot of times the worldviews that are pushing for this 
uh, also bring with them the assumption, the humanist assumption that human beings are inherently good. And that if we just change the environment, that we could basically birth a utopia of we, uh, a utopia of, of togetherness. But the Christian message is fundamentally different. It says, like, well, human beings aren't inherently good. And so any attempt that you make um, toward a good and just society is always going to it's, it's always going to manifest an injustice. Someone's always going to be a have and someone's always going to be a have not because the problem isn't political or environmental. The problem is sin. Um, but here's the thing. I think it's also sad that in many cases, Adventists tend to only criticize these, uh, these pursuits or these, these ideas. And in most cases, we end up in all kinds of really bizarre conspiracy theories about new world orders and secret societies and blah, blah, blah. And, and so I don't get into all that. I, I find that stuff is um, boring. My approach is the opposite. My approach is to say, okay, so there's an entire generation of Greta Thunbergs. There's an entire generation of Elon Musks. There's an entire generation. I mean, you know, Elon Musk is a bit older, but you know. Planetary migration um, is is a thing that is definitely catching the attention of younger generations as well. Um, there's there's an entire generation, I guess, the point I'm saying of 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 young people who are really passionate about a world in which true justice and equity is manifested, and and and, and so to contextualize the gospel to the pursuit of this terrestrial siblinghood, I think is absolutely essential. So so rather than standing. Uh, on the side, just tossing stones, you know, oh, globalization, Jesuits, you know, globalization, this and that, and, you know, secret societies and all this crazy stuff that honestly doesn't work. Um, I've taken a different approach. And, and my approach is to say, okay, um, what is there within this worldview that is redemptive that I can take our message and really call people to follow Jesus by contextualizing our message to these categories that are, are very meaningful for emerging generations. And so this is kind of how it makes sense in my head. And this is kind of how I work it out. And, and, I, and, and as I explain this, I want you to think through the ways in which I'm contextualizing. And then you can take that and apply it locally in a way that makes sense in your context, um, in your sphere. So the Trinity... Uh, going all the way back doctrinally to the Trinity, the, the, the very essence of who God is, is that God is an eternal community of three who are yet one. And so from the very beginning, before anything existed, before God created anything, uh, God in his self-existing experience uh, is in relational oneness. It is an eternal community, an eternal social unity. And based on this divine, eternal social unity, God creates the world to function in a way that is in harmony with this reality of himself. In other words, reality is designed to reflect the eternal community of oneness where everything that exists exists for the other. And this is the original creation. And I think we would all agree that this is also what heaven is going to be like. Uh, it's 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 this beautiful design, right? It's this beautiful ecosystem, not just in a sort of uh, biological sense, but even in a spiritual sense and a, in a social sense. There's this ecosystem that 
reflects the eternal community of oneness that is who God is. It reflects this relational other-centeredness that is who God is. And so this relational oneness um, is, is basically the bedrock of reality and it reflects who God is. God designed it and that's who he is. And so he designed reality to function this way. And, and what this means is that in our universe, in our reality, in this plane of existence that we occupy, the way in which God designed it is that nothing exists for itself. Everything exists in a careful relationship, a symbiotic ecosystem, right? Where each individual part matters individually, but also functions collectively for the benefit of all, the many as one. And so therefore, God's original creation was designed to function as a planetary village. It wasn't meant to be nation against nation and resource control and military checkpoints and imaginary borders and territorial possessiveness. This was not the way of the original creation. The original creation was meant to function as a planetary village where every member of its population lived according to the rhythm of other-centered relational oneness. And this is just another way of saying love, agape love. So what I say to the emerging social justice pursuit of a global village is that this pursuit is actually proof of God's image in them. We don't want to see 1% of the world's population live exorbitantly lavish lives while kids starve in other countries. We don't want to see one particular race enjoy inherent leverages in society that other races do not have. We don't want to see one gender have the capacity to fully self-actualize while the other gender is repressed. We don't want to see social, economic, or even ecological injustice because this injustice separates us and leads to more injustice, more suffering, more imbalance. And there is something within the human heart that screams, we should be one. Oneness is how we are meant to thrive. And I say that that desire right there is evidence of God's image in us. Oneness is how we are meant to thrive. Now, of course, in a fallen world, how we achieve that oneness is where the disagreement lies. I don't believe you achieve this oneness through politics or legislation or religion or philosophy. And, and for those of you listening to this who like to see a Jesuit under every bush, let me be clear. I don't believe that this oneness is achieved through mysticism or ecumenism or globalism either. But that doesn't mean that the pursuit of oneness isn't in itself worth celebrating. It is worth celebrating because it's what God originally designed. And if you are aiming to reconstruct humanity's neighborhood from this chaotic division toward a cohesive, united neighborhood in which each neighbor is equal and valued and able to thrive to their full God-given potential, then I applaud you. We may disagree on the ways in which we believe we're going to arrive at that place, but I want to applaud that desire because that desire reflects God's heart. It's evidence of God's image in us. No matter how secular we are, 
no matter how post-Christian or how post-church we are, we can't get away from the image of God in us that says we are meant to operate in relational oneness. So my first step toward contextualization in, in the culture is to identify how the nature of God himself is the source of emerging generations social justice and ecological justice ethic. God's own heart is the source of that. Now, the second approach that I take is the sanctuary. According to the Bible, this synchronicity, right, this oneness that we've been discussing was broken by sin. And so sin then emerges as the ultimate source of separation. And this is the thing. I really want you guys to understand this because in the conversation over oneness, uh, when we talk about social justice or, or oneness in, in, a, in, a, in a secular context, right? In a non-religious context, oneness is usually talked about in more mystical terms. Um, but in the conversation over oneness, there is an antagonist. There's a bad guy. There's a villain in this story. And it's not Satan, uh, our personal villain. Um, the main antagonist in this narrative or in this story is separation. All right, so I want you to understand that because as I explained this contextualization, you 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 have to understand the way in which people are perceiving reality. And and this is the bottom line, right? Like for many Christians, we think we we interpret the world through the framework, especially Western Christians, we interpret the world through the framework of guilt and innocence. And everything is about guilt and innocence. And Christianity is all about just having your sins forgiven because you're guilty and you need to be made innocent. But emerging generations don't perceive the world that way because the, the impact of postmodernism and relativism has basically eroded the possibility for a guilt-innocence framework to make any sense. And so the way in which emerging generations perceive the tension in reality isn't through guilt and innocence, it's through oneness and separation, right? It's through the haves and the have-nots, uh, the social justice, the equity, the ecological justice, those kinds of things. And so separation is the bad guy in this story. Separation is the main antagonist. It's the secular Satan. And so borders, caste systems, class distinctions, gender and racial inequality, the wall on the border of Mexico, right? Trump's wall. All of this falls under the category of this secular Satan, which is best understood as separation. Separation is the bad guy in this story. And oneness is the divine goal. Oneness is the salvation. And so when I'm discussing the gospel with this deeply secular mind, the sanctuary becomes really meaningful because the sanctuary, as we've seen throughout this whole series of reframing Adventism for a post-church world, the sanctuary reveals God's desire to be one with us, right? God's desire to dwell with us. And I refer to this as not so much as the sanctuary, I refer to this as the withness of God. God wants to be one. He wants to be with us. So that's where the term withness comes from. He wants to be with us. But sin plunges us into separation from him. And so there's the bad guy, the separation. And as a result, this global web of interpersonal interconnectedness that God designed is damaged 
And now we experience separation from one another. There's the bad guy again, right? We experience separation, which, and this separation leads to violence and hate and envy and exploitation and oppression and systemic injustice and suffering. But the good news is the sanctuary reveals the way back to oneness with God. The way back, it's through the gospel, the work of Jesus, who absorbed on the cross, Jesus absorbed the separation in himself. He entered into the depths of separation, right? He went into the grave. That's like the ultimate act of separation is the grave. And he enters into the depths of separation, and then he conquers it by coming back from the grave. And so Jesus then becomes the source of true oneness with God. And ultimately, he is also the source of a true universal cosmic citizenship in which everything operates in a grand synthesis of relational oneness. And this return to oneness is what the Bible calls atonement. Right now, think of the word atone. If you split that word in half, what do you have? At one. Put them together, atone. Separate them at one. Atonement, which is what Jesus is doing, is all about bringing the universe back into oneness. He makes it one again with himself. He restores this cosmic harmony, this planetary village. And those who ultimately inhabit this cosmic harmony, this planetary village, which is what heaven is all about, are, are those who have chosen by faith in Jesus, to be restored to oneness with him and with one another. And so this is why the New Testament calls the church to be one in love, relationally unified in its diversity, because the biblical concept of unity and diversity, which is not uniformity, by the way, it's nothing more than a call to God's people to begin operating according to the original design of relational oneness. And in this new creation, this new city, we finally see a truly just and equitable society emerge, one in which every heart moves in harmony with God's own heart of eternal community. And within this perspective, we have a complete reframing of Adventism that never once denies Adventism, but rather contextualizes it to the categories and value structures of emerging metamodern generations. And so in this view, just maybe to make a few more points before I close, uh, the law of God isn't about a list of rules. It's about rhythm with God's heart. And in a sense, to be honest with you, that's actually more biblical, right? In the traditional guilt-innocence framework, the, the law of God is seen as this externally imposed list of rules that we've broken. And because we've broken them, you know, God's going to judge us and he's going to punish us. But then Jesus is the nice guy who dies for us. And, um, you know, this restores us back into a good relationship, an innocent relationship with God. Now, of course, I do find lots of theological problems with that. I don't think that's biblical at all. Um, so I'm not suggesting that what I am, when I reframe the gospel into oneness and separation, that I'm somehow 
telling that same exact story in a different way. Uh, I'm actually aiming to be more biblical because the law of God in scripture is not a coercive list of demands that he imposes on humanity. The law of God is a reflection of his heart. It's the transcript of his character. Jesus said it. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills all the law and the prophets. And so the law of God is love. And love is the character of God as the social unit, the eternal community. And so in this vision, we really emphasize that God's law isn't about rules. It's about rhythm. It's about being in synchronicity with his heart. Love being the primary thing that drives us rather than selfishness. And so in this framework, the gospel isn't about guilt or innocence. It's about oneness and separation. And this makes the gospel deeply more relational. Because God made us to be one with him relationally. And sin separates us from him. And through the gospel, we can be restored back to oneness with him, relational oneness with him, which means our hearts can go back to moving according to the rhythm of God's own heart. And this in turn manifests as a community of people who are pursuing justice and equity and healing and compassion and love and 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 you know they bear one another's burdens and they pray together and and they they lift each other up right like why are these people living like this they're living like this because they're being restored back to the rhythm of oneness and and in this in this narrative as well in this reframing prophecy reclaims its role as a protest of injustice right prophecy isn't just about telling future events you guys the prophets in scripture protested injustice they protested systemic and institutional wrongs they called out kings they called out priests they called out um, corrupt judges and, and, and the elite. And this was their responsibility. They spoke out against social, civic, and economic injustices. And this is what prophecy essentially is. The book of Daniel and Revelation are books that deeply protest human empire. They protest the categories upon which human empire is constructed. And this includes religion, by the way. The book of Daniel and Revelation both protest religion and the categories in which religion is constructed. And, and, and even more so, it protests and condemns and repudiates and resists the union between religion and state. And so these are, this is deeply, deeply, um, social. This is, this is, this is deeply political, but not in a partisan sense. It's, it's, it's in a transcendent sense. There's a vision. There's a, there's an ethic, a divine ethic that says to human empire, no, you are not it. Um, you have been found wanting. And, and, and there's a sense in which this prophetic message, we've lost it as Adventists, right? We, we're more concerned with dates and proving you know, 1844 is the right day. We have these massive papers that you got to be a scholar to get through. And, and look, I agree with the date. I don't have a problem with the date. But if that's the main thing that you talk about when you talk about 1844, when you talk about the investigative judgment is the main thing, or if the main thing rather, that you're talking about is a particular date, then you're only going to be appealing to people who are date nerds. You know, people who are willing to sit there and look at, ancient calendars and you know kings and the way in which these people counted their calendar and compared to the persians and you know it's just it's interesting stuff for people who are into that which is very few people 
And so when we present the investigative judgment, what are we really talking about, right? And so in, in this sense, in, in this context, in this reframing, because I teach the investigative judgment all the time, uh, it emerges uh, not as a pursuit of some particular date, but as an act of divine universal social justice, what I refer to as cosmic justice. And end time events emerge as a protest of human empire and religion, of tyranny, coercion, oppression. And finally, the promise of heaven isn't some nebulous idea, but it's a promise of a new global citizenship of justice that is to come. It's a complete restoration of God's original design, a new civilization populated by a new humanity recreated in Jesus. Now, there's a lot more that I can say, but I think you can start to see a bit um, of how understanding what Adventism really is allows us to contextualize Adventism to diverse cultural shifts without losing the essence or message of Adventism. And this oneness separation paradigm is by no means the only one. It's just the one that I have found works really well in, in the context into which I'm speaking, but it's one among many that we need to communicate the gospel to a post-church, post-Christian world. And you'll notice, by the way, that this reframe doesn't say anything about being perfect. And it doesn't say anything about how all other denominations are evil and how we're the only right ones, or about conspiracy theories or secret societies or about silly irrational rules. Why? Why doesn't this reframe bring up those things? Because that's not what Adventism is about. And, and this is the thing that I've been stressing since this series began, that there is no way to reframe toxic adulterations of Adventism and make them missionally effective in a post-church age because those concepts, those adulterations of Adventism are inherently repulsive, especially to a non-religious mind. Right? They see right through that nonsense. They're not sitting there, you know, ready to take on anything you say just because you quoted a Bible verse, right? They'll think through that stuff and they'll be like, hey, wait a minute, something's really out of place here. And so this is why I've been stressing from day one, you guys, we need to rediscover the essence of Adventism, get rid of all the extra human baggage, and then take that raw, naked, beautiful Adventism to the world. And I want to invite you to be a part of this, man. And I want to invite you to take this task seriously, because I believe that if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're listening to this series, it's likely because you have a heart for this culture. And it's because God is going to use you to study, plan, and devise new methods and new approaches to reaching emerging generations. This isn't Marcus's mission. This is the Great Commission. And together, we can do what God has called us to do. We can redesign Adventism for mission. In my particular context, the issue of separation and oneness is a framework that works relatively well in helping people understand the heart of God in a way that makes sense to them. It may be completely different where you are. You know, the secular people that surround you might be politically conservative. They might hate social justice. And so you're going to have to frame it in a way that's different. And if you're dealing with uh, secular modernists, right, because this framework of, of oneness separation really seems to hit it off really well with secular postmodernists. But if you're dealing with secular modernists, then they're going to have different questions. They're going to they're gonna wonder, uh, you know, they're going to want questions about, you know, how do you know God exists and um, how do you know the Bible is reliable? Those are sort of secular modernist questions that postmodernists don't ask. So really, guys, it just, it just depends, man. You really got to get to know people. You really got to love on people and hang out with people 
and and inhabit their spaces and listen, 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 listen. And when you've listened, listen even more. Because it's only by listening that you can begin to understand where people's minds are, where people's hearts are. And then through that, through those stories that their hearts are telling, you can contextualize the message of redemption that we have been given as a people and, and offer it in a way that makes existential sense to the spheres of influence that you inhabit. So this is the final episode of Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. I want to remind you, this was just to scratch the surface, this final episode. Um, and obviously, there's probably lots of questions that remain. So I want to remind you, check out that book, The 3D Gospel. I think you're going to find it super duper helpful. And also get a copy of The Road, you guys. I, I know I was joking around earlier about the plug and stuff, but seriously, like I designed this thing. I put my heart and soul into this thing. Um, because I wanted to provide a tool to not only study the Bible with secular culture, but to equip you as a missionary in the post-church age to do that job effectively. And this Bible study set is not just a set that comes in a book that you get in the mail and you're on your own. It has an entire online school attached to it. And in that online school, I share more and I answer There's the options for you to even email me questions and I'll answer the questions. I'll make videos. This whole thing isn't about just creating a product that you just get and that's it. You're on your own. I really want to equip you. I really want to walk with you and challenge you and inspire you with the little bit that I know. And honestly, in this experience, Experience, I really look forward to learning from you as well because I don't know everything. But really take advantage of that, you guys, because that's specifically what it was designed for. Uh, and like I said earlier, this is also the final episode for 2020. I'm taking a break and look forward to a new year in 2021 with fresh new content. So I'm going to say farewell, goodbye, adios, hasta luego. Until then, enjoy your holidays and don't forget to pray and work toward an Adventism redesigned.